I want to welcome you if you're here, here for the first time or here for, for the first of a few times. We welcome our regulars too, but we want to give a special welcome to those that have decided to share your morning with us. If you're here for the first time, or maybe I guess the first couple of times and haven't, do you see how I missed that? And haven't received a little packet, a little welcome packet, I'll invite you at the end of our worship time this morning to get with Clay Petzold. He's on the second row there. Raise your hand, Clay. He's going to be in the other building at a little welcome table that we have with a little packet set up for you. Um, we really just want to try and get all the, the details together, the essentials for you to know who we are. I mean, now, it doesn't compare to getting to know the people, so it's just a compliment to that. So I invite you, if you haven't done that, to do that this morning at the end of the worship service. That would be a treat for us to know that you leave with one of those. Um, let me begin with prayer, and then we're going to climb into Hebrews. Lord, this morning, before we pray about some specifics about how we spend these next few minutes, I want to pray for Lewis Smith and for Fellowship Baptist Church in Lone Oak. I'm uh, thankful for the role that Lewis has in so many young lives through GCS. I'm thankful as a years of teaching that he has invested in folks and loved on folks and sown the gospel into their lives. And Lord, I'm thankful this morning to have the opportunity to lift up Lewis as a pastor of Lone Oak, or of Fellowship Baptist in Lone Oak. Lord, I, I pray first of all for Lewis for his worship. I pray that you would uh, guard him from um, viewing and doing his job like a job, but that it would be calling pray that you would fuel him with worship so that he is standing and delivering, so that he is shepherding and pastoring in a way as if Christ were shepherding and pastoring uh, this church in Lone Oak. Lord, I just want to lift up Lewis, first of all, for his worship, and secondly, that that worship would find purchase at home, that his family would see uh, what worship is doing in his life as he is growing in Christ-likeness. I pray that this his students would see a real connection between worship and his life. And Lord, I pray that that would spill over into the pulpit and spill over into the ministry at uh, Fellowship Baptist, Lord. Um, I'm thankful, too, for the opportunity to lift up this church in Lone Oak. Lord, we recognize that Lone Oak is not a large town, and Fellowship Baptist likely is not a large church, but they are very much the church. And we, have, we count it a privilege to lift up our brothers and sisters this morning, we pray for health. We pray for a salty, bright, aromatic people that are equipped and deployed at the end of a morning every Sunday into their context, whether it's Lone Oak or Greenville or wherever they might work. Uh, Lord, we are thankful that we share a baptism, that we share a Holy Spirit, uh, that we share a Savior, and we count it a privilege to lift them up this morning. Lord, as far as how we spend these next few minutes, I am... Um, in light of last week's message, I'm praying for clarity. I'm praying that, that the truth would be made plain today in a passage where that could be missed. I'm praying that it really, really hits home because the Holy Spirit is opening the eyes of our hearts and equipping us in a way today that would bring you glory. I pray that I will preach as if it's up to me, that we will listen as if it's up to us, but that we beg you to be at work through the preaching through the listening, to actually do the work of equipping us this morning. We're thankful for how you've equipped us in these last four years in Hebrews. It's been a privilege to walk through this book and for you to guide us through this book. We are thankful 
We entrust this time to you and we offer it to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I think it was August of 2011 that we began the journey in Hebrews. And here we find ourselves, after taking our time and taking a few little seasons away, on our last sermon from the book of Hebrews. We're not in the very last verses there in Hebrews because those are really just sort of final greetings as you're heading and your Bibles might say. This morning we're going to spend our remaining Sunday in the book of Hebrews considering the benediction. Benedictions are are and were and have been a very common part of corporate worship for the last 2,000 years in the life of the church. They're not a common thing, or they haven't necessarily been a common thing for us in the last 12 years, but over the last year or so, especially, if you've been paying attention, you may have noticed that we end often, over the last year or so, end our morning with a benediction, and this benediction from Hebrews. So we've been hearing it, we've been ending our corporate worship times with it, and this morning we are going to pour ourselves into it and hope and pray that the Lord opens it up for us. I'll go ahead and read our passage, and then I'll give you a plan for the morning. Beginning in verse 20 of chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Planned for the morning is I want to take a few minutes and unpack this passage. I want to acquaint you with the passage, and I want you to understand before we really get into the application, this is very much part of preaching. If we jump to application without doing some diligence, some work in unpacking and pointing out the the furniture in the room and dealing with the luggage, then we could land anywhere. But we will land soundly and squarely with some appropriate and fitting application if we do the work of unpacking. And I'm going to make you work this morning. It's not going to be one of those hour and a half long sermons like we've done before in Hebrews, but it's also not going to be a little ditty. It's going to be somewhere in between where you'll need your Bibles. You will always need your Bibles at Cross Point Fellowship. But you will need your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, you can grab the one under the seat bottom in front of you. And if, that, if you don't have one, that can become yours. You can write your name in the front. I have page numbers for you this morning to help you go to a few places. I'll give you a heads up about where those places are so you can go ahead and mark those places in your Bible. Isaiah 63 we'll visit today. It's on page 622 of your Pew Bible and most of your ESV versions. That's kind of redundant. ESVs. Ephesians 2 is another passage we're going to be going to. Ephesians 4, nearby, across the page in a lot of your Bibles. That's on page 976. And then lastly, two passages in Matthew. Matthew 7 and Matthew 13. And those are pages 812 and 818. Uh, I'll probably have you turn at the very end of the morning to Hebrews 6. So that's just a few pages in front of where you are right now in Hebrews This is the benediction, as I mentioned before. This benediction, in this case, is a third-person prayer for his church family. It's a prayer wish in some ways. You might call it that, for his people. 
there are three parts to it. If you boil it down and break it down, most simple form of this benediction. First of all, there's an invocation. The invocation, this pastor here is invoking God's presence. May the God of peace would be a good way to summarize the invocation. There's invocation first. Secondly, there's petition. And if we're to boil down the petition to two words, equip you. May the God of peace equip you is the petition beginning in verse 21. And then it ends with a doxology, a desire for God's glory, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What I want to do for this unpacking the luggage and pointing out the furniture is I want to spend some time considering three observations having to do with the invocation. Then we're going to consider the petition. And then we're just going to spend a moment on the doxology, and then we're going to deal with some application. So first of all, dealing with the invocation, really mostly verse 20, where God is invoked into this benediction. I want to point out, first of all, that the first of these three observations is that he's praying. This pastor that has sown into the life of this church through a hearty, meaty sermon called the book of Hebrews here is praying. After all that's been said and all that's been explained and all that's been exposed about who Jesus is, all that's been warned, all that's been urged, last week we considered he's asking for prayer. Pray for us that we may be restored to you all the sooner. And here, though, he is praying for his people. This sounds like a guy to me who believes God is sovereign over all the work. People who don't pray don't believe that. But people who pray and who beg God for his involvement in things believe that God is ultimately the Lord and sovereign over every detail, including his restoration to them from last week in verse 19. Pray, please, that I may be restored to you all the sooner and here this pastor is praying for them. It looks like he, after he explains and appeals to the hearers with these deep and rich truths, that here he's preaching as if it's up to this point, he's been preaching and moving with them as if it's up to them. Yet here we find that he sleeps at night, we believe, because he bathes this work. He bathes this message in prayer knowing that God is Lord over every bit of it. He's done some serious work in this, what he called this brief word of exhortation, but he bathes it in prayer. Preachers, fellow preachers, shepherds leading families, the best preaching, the best shepherding, the best exposition, the best urging, the best appeals in the world are bankrupt if they're not bathed in prayer, if God is not at work in it and through it, and behind it. So we together, pastors and shepherds of families, must pray. We must pray. I've come to believe that our Wednesday morning prayer time that I'm part of with some other men, and the time that our life groups are spending in prayer every night that they meet, those are the engines of this church. Those are the engines of this church. Shepherds, families, church family, 
If you're not praying, you have no engine. It's an empty shell. Here, this guy is praying. Secondly, we see going on in this invocation, we see a reference to the resurrection. This is the only reference to the resurrection in this entire sermon. Throughout this sermon up to this point, the emphasis has been on Christ being victor, on Christ being seated, and Christ reigning and ruling and being in session. Yet here we see him being referenced as one who is brought forth from the dead. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I point this out is because it's going to be pretty cool to see why in just a second. Now, the third thing from this invocation, he's referred to as the great shepherd. This is the only case in this book, and it may be, I believe, probably the only case in the entire Bible where Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd. The phrasing of this passage takes us back to Isaiah 63. Go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 63. I gave you a page number of 622 in most of your ESVs and should be pretty close to your pew Bible. The reason this takes us back to Isaiah 63 is in some ways you have to be like um, Ben Gates in National Treasure where you're looking for clues and trying to make sense of where this thing's leading you. And the clues that we find in Hebrews throughout are references to the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And in this case, it's verbatim sort of language that takes them, would have taken the Hebrews church, making a beeline to Isaiah 63. We have to do a little extra work because we won't make that beeline on our own. We have to go to Isaiah 63 to see what he's talking about. In some ways, his reference is just shorthand for a little storyline. So here in Isaiah 63, we pick up a storyline and a reference that will help us make sense of what he's talking about here in Hebrews in referencing Jesus as the great shepherd. Now, Isaiah was written seven, 800 years or so after Moses led the nation of Israel across the Red Sea. It's written about seven or 800 years before Christ. It's sort of in that little tweener spot between the Exodus and between Christ's first coming. And here Isaiah is speaking about something in the past. He's speaking about Moses and what God did through Moses. Listen to these words beginning in verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? In some ways, he's, he's praying, asking, where is God's presence in all of this dark period in the life of Israel during Isaiah's ministry? Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? There, here, there. The words apply to Moses leading God's people through the Red Sea. Here, though, in Hebrews 13, the Hebrews preacher is in bringing these words in as they apply to Jesus as the new and better Moses. Moses was a pretty good shepherd. Jesus, though, is the great shepherd. 
Moses led a people across the Red Sea on dry ground. Pretty impressive. Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. They cross on dry ground. Crunch, crunch. Saved. Amazing. Awesome. Our great shepherd, though, has led us through the sea and the abyss of death. And he's delivered us to the other side. That's what's being communicated here. And it is a wonderful, wonderful piece of furniture. If you haven't been paying attention or you're not paying attention, please see this beauty in this great shepherd who is leading his people through the sea of death. Now, one of the beauties of this passage, if we keep reading, continuing in verse 12, is I want you to see some words. I'm going to call attention to them, and I want to show you a really beautiful truth connected to this work of our great shepherd, He remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of the flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert... They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourselves a glorious name. Now here's the wonderful truth that I really don't want you to miss. We're going to come back to this later this morning. And if you've missed it now, you're going to feel kind of silly then. So really get this. Jesus was led forth not as an isolated shepherd, not as an individual. He was led forth as a shepherd with his flock. Those words that I just called attention to you, who led them through the depths, they did not stumble. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Something the Hebrews church would have enjoyed as they as they followed that little shortcut back to this passage in Isaiah 63, is the reality that the entire people are specified as the object of God's leading. The sheep go with the shepherd. That should be good news for you. It sounded very familiar to a New Testament teaching. And I want you to see this. I definitely want you to turn to this passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 on page 976 of your ESV, most of your ESVs. I want you to see this passage. I, I think if I could, could point to a, one passage for, that for me summarizes the essence of the gospel better than any passage in our Bible, it would be where we're going in these next few seconds. Ephesians chapter 2 and watch what happens here. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you, Ephesian church, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were looking at the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on you. You were as good as dead. Okay, import some of that imagery that we've just considered. You were in a bad, serious situation. And then here Paul points them to, it's not just a Gentile problem, it's also a Jewish problem. Among whom we all, the Jews, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But God, in verse 4, 
two sweetest words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with the great shepherd. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, like right now, April 19th, 2015, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This reference here in Hebrews 13 isn't just about Jesus being drawn through the abyss of death, but it's also about the sheep being drawn with the shepherd. And it's a wonderful truth. Christ's deliverance through the abyss was your deliverance through the abyss. His Easter morning is our Easter morning. Does anybody enjoy that with me? Does anybody celebrate that the shepherd has not left the sheep behind, but that the great shepherd has drawn us through just as well? The second thing I want you to see from this passage Going back to Hebrews 13, if you've turned away from there, flip back over there because I want you to see this. We're still dealing with the great shepherd language. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This deliverance through this abyss of death As the God of peace draws our Lord, the great shepherd, and the sheep through the abyss of death, he is doing this by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, this is the second thing I really want you to see, and I don't want you to miss it. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary 2,000 years ago. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary and there sprinkled his own blood prior to the resurrection. He sprinkled his own blood prior to the resurrection. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred by virtue of the sprinkling of the blood in the heavenly sanctuary and the establishment of a new and better and final and absolute covenant. What I want you to see here that's just so sweet is this by the blood of the eternal covenant. He was resurrected by the blood of the eternal covenant. I want you to see it could be translated by virtue of the blood of the covenant. That his blood was causal in his resurrection. That his blood was so fine and so acceptable to the father that the father said, come forth, my son. Like Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. That his blood was so satisfying to the human problem that he said, my son, Easter morning, come forth. He was resurrected because his blood was so fine and is so fine. This quote is from my favorite commentator, a guy named Lane. He said, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates God's decisive intervention. Remember, it's our resurrection as well. God's decisive intervention by which he acknowledged And he ratified the cross of Christ as the means of the redemption of the human family. 
Man, that's some good medicine right there. You'll see why later. If you're like, man, that's kind of an interesting theological tidbit, you're going to find out it's more than that in a moment. If you've grabbed it with me, hold on to it because we're going to come back to it later. But I want, what I want you to see right now is that God said via the resurrection, this sacrifice is sufficient. I, I, I'm just convinced he's going to speak with a Scottish accent when we see him. And he's going to say, that'll do. That'll do. That blood will do for the human problem. Come forth, my son. Remove the stone, angels, and let my son walk free. Man, this reference to him being the great shepherd is so sweet because the great shepherd's blood is oh so fine. It makes me think of John 10, a familiar passage to us. I am the good shepherd. We know that he's not only good, he's great. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what he did. And God said his life is good enough and his blood is sufficient, so he called him forth. Now, as to the petition. Remember, I told you we're going to deal with three things. First, the invocation. It's done. A brief comment about the petition and then a very brief comment about the doxology. But the petition... What is this Hebrews preacher asking God for here in this important prayer, in this benediction? He's asking God that these people be equipped to do his will. Okay, I want you to think about that for a minute. He's asking God, this guy who who apparently believes that God is sovereign over all of it. He's preached as if it's up to him, but here he's praying, knowing that God is actually going to be the doer behind it. He's asking that God would equip them to do his will. He didn't pray that they would be happy. He didn't pray that things would go well for them, that they would get that job that they really want. He didn't pray that their lives would be trouble-free. He didn't pray that they would be wealthy or healthy. He didn't pray that they would even be delivered from Rome or the Jews the persecution that they were likely facing. Terrible persecution at the time. He didn't pray for any of those things. He didn't pray for numerical growth. He prayed that they would be equipped with everything good. Now that phrase, everything good, could be translated, which I really appreciate, the goods. He prayed that they would be equipped with the goods, the good stuff. And that they would be equipped with this good stuff in order to, like this effectively a purpose clause, that they would be able to do his will. He is effectively praying that they'll be equipped with the goods to obey. Now, at the end of this amazing book, this four-year investment, if I were to ask the question of church member X at Crosspoint Fellowship, ask the question... If you're defining a Christian, they will know you by your blank. Most of us would say love, and I think that's true, absolutely. But if we were paying attention in the last four years in Hebrews, we wouldn't put love in there, although love is something that they will hopefully know us by. We would put the word obedience. What you may not realize is Hebrews is a New Testament version of Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy is God's work through Moses on Nebo, calling a people to obedience when they go into the promised land, when they get their reward. And here the Hebrews preacher is calling a people to obedience before they cross the Jordan into our promised land. And he's calling them to obedience just like Deuteronomy did. You will know them by their obedience. That's what he's praying for here. God, I pray that you will equip them to do your will. Do you see this as a mark of a Christian people? Do you sow this into your children? Do you have this conversation as families that we want to be obedient? That we as a people, as a church, want to be obedient? You should. Along with love, it should be a characteristic of the people of God. And don't miss in this phrase, too. As he's calling, as he's begging for equipment to do God's will, that he qualifies that statement and that prayer with these words, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, i.e. the God of peace. God of peace, I'm asking you to equip my people to obey you. And also, God of peace, I'm praying that you will actually work that obedience out, that you will actuate obedience. Man, he believes God is sovereign over every bit of it. What a wonderful truth we'll consider together later in this morning. Lastly, in this benediction is the doxology. The request and acknowledgement for the glory of God. That the God of peace would be so glorified through equipping his people to do his will. That he would be glorified in the resurrection of his son that's actuating all of that. That he would actually bring us to a place of obedience and all of that through Jesus Christ. Man, it's a beautiful request that should be the end of every service for us. That God would actuate it. That God would do it. And that God would be glorified in and through every bit of it. And then it's followed by what would have traditionally been voiced by the church body that we're going to do at the end of the morning this morning with the word, amen. Amen. Fitting to, yes, we agree with this benediction. Now, what's in this benediction for us? What does God have for us here? I have three thoughts. First, what he prays for should inform what we ask for. What we hope for in each other, what we hope for in our church, what we hope for in our families, what he prays for here should inform what we ask for. Remember, we've, if we break it down, there's, there's invocation, there's petition, there's doxology. That petition was, he's praying that they will be equipped to do his will. We, too, need to be equipped to do his will. Think about that for a minute. We too have to be equipped to do his will. That word in verse 21 for equip means to put in proper condition. It means to be made complete. And what's implied there is that the, the moment you come to faith in Christ, you are not complete. Now you are reckoned his. You're not partially adopted. You're all his. But you're not complete. You're not complete to do his will. You have to be equipped to do his will. He's implying here that they were and that we are incomplete. Though believing, 
we are incomplete and should be about the work of being completed for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our faith journeys. It means you don't naturally have some things you need for glory. It means you don't naturally have some things that you need for eternity. It means that you don't naturally come by some things that you need to obey our God. You have to be equipped with those things. And wisdom and humility are in order to get there. You have to first know, oh man, I need some equipping. I don't come with all the goods. I need some goods to equip me to obey him. It takes humility to know that and wisdom. How does he equip his people? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to think about as you're turning there, how did God equip his people in Hebrews here? How is he equipping his people in Hebrews? How has he gone about the work of equipping his people in Hebrews? It's happened through 10 chapters full of true things about Jesus. Potent, hearty, deep, and I'm going to add cumbersome truths about Jesus, right? Let's be really honest. We've had some hard, hard preaching and some hard, hard listening. And we've had to work together to get through the book of Hebrews, right? But man, he's equipped them through 10 chapters of true things about Jesus. And then an 11th chapter full of examples of those who were faithful. And then two more chapters, chapters 12 and 13, that are full of what are called paranesis, that are appropriate advice in light of who Christ is in those 10 chapters. He's equipped them through the folly of preaching. He's equipped them through what we have called and recognized is a brief word of exhortation. A sermon called the book of Hebrews. Now the reason I had you turn turn to Ephesians 4, I want you to look at verse 8. And then we're going to jump down to verse 11. Between verse 8 and verse 11, there's just sort of a weird passage that's not essential to us making sense of what he's saying here. It's important. It's scripture. But Beginning in verse 8. When he ascended on high as the victor, this is Jesus. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This would have been a common practice for a victor to give some gifts, to lead his captives in a procession, and to give some gifts to his people. Now look at what the gifts are that Jesus has given his people down in verse 11. And he gave, these are the gifts, the apostles, and they're all dead. Okay, dead. Anybody says they're a current day apostle? I think they're stretching the meaning there. He's talking about the disciples later called apostles. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. Now, someone may have a gift of prophecy, but in this strictest sense, I believe, ended with John the Baptist, the last New Testament prophet, in the strictest sense. And then he's given some people that are still alive now called evangelists. And then he's given, lastly, the shepherds and teachers. Those are the same, the pastor's teachers, of which I am one, of which Crosspoint has three He's given those gifts to the church to actually do something. And what does it say next? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. He's given gifts to men in this procession. And those gifts are, in our case, the pastor teacher who is equipping the saints for the work of service. 
And I do it the same way the Hebrews preacher did it right here, through preaching. This is where you're equipped, right here, right now, delivered via a just as human, just as frail pastor teacher. This is how he equips the saints, right here. You're in it. You're sitting here in it right now. That's what I want to consider in the next couple minutes. If you ask the question, okay, well, how does equipping go down? How does it, what's this thing look like? How does this thing unfold? Well, here's how it goes down, just like this. You're sitting in a room where someone is speaking, and you're mostly listening or doing the best you can to listen, and this one who is speaking, if he's faithful, is exposing what this Bible is saying, and he's exposing some really important things like The God of peace drew the great shepherd through the abyss of the sea of death with his people. It's a great example of what it looks like. How does it go down? Well, it goes down like it did a few minutes ago. You were equipped for something then. You may not realize it. You might think, man, I just thought that was a nice theological tidbit. Kind of cool. What you don't realize is you were equipped for something in that moment. Remember where that clue took us? It confirmed, and it's confirmed in Ephesians 2. It took us back to the reality that as the shepherd was drawn through, so were his sheep. If you ask the question, how does this thing go down? What does it look like? Well, it might look like this. Like a few minutes ago in this room where you heard and learned, maybe for the first time, that his resurrection was because of his blood. It wasn't just incidental. It was consequential. It was in response to a blood that was so fine, so great, that God said, It's my son, come forth, Easter morning, 2,000 years ago. By virtue of his blood, he was raised. Now, what you may not realize is you were equipped for Tuesday with those two truths. You were equipped to walk faithfully in marriage with the person that you're sitting next to, or maybe not. With truths like that. You are equipped to be a faithful young man or young woman. With truths like this. You are equipped to be a grandmother or a grandfather or great-grandfather. A faithful worshiper with truths like this. Now when you face what feels like an abyss in your marriage in your relationships, in your family dynamics. And I know some of those in here that some of you share, they are really, they look like and feel like an abyss. In your context, some of you just really struggle with Greenville. It's just killing you. And you're wearing it. It's an abyss. Maybe it's your work. Some of you are struggling with your work. And you're wearing it. You can draw on and know that you are equipped to deal with that. You can realize that you were equipped this morning to enjoy that you were already drawn through the abyss, the true abyss. (laughs) You can know whatever darkness you're facing, that you have already been delivered with the great shepherd through the ultimate abyss. And that truth equips you to deal with that pseudo-abyss. 
That reality equips you to press on faithfully in hard and difficult places. You were equipped for that just now. Think about this. When death is pressing in, when the dark abyss of death is pressing in with a struggle or a challenge that seems overwhelming, you can know and realize that you were equipped with a realization that the greatest threat to you has already been overcome and that Jesus' blood satisfied God with your greatest problem. That'll shed light on your other problems, I promise you. You were equipped to deal with all those other things just now. With the folly of preaching, if we would but take the time to connect the dots. On Tuesday, when you're in this abyss, you can hear the words, that'll do. That'll do. That's sufficient. And not only is it sufficient, it's fine, it's sublime. My son, come forth, angels remove the stone. You were equipped for that moment and that reality to connect in that moment where you feel like, man, I cannot understand why my wife and I are so like this. You were equipped for your heart to well up with something that will give you a resource to deal with that moment that happens to everybody. To deal with that moment in a way that makes for grace and makes for hope and makes for redemption where you can work through it. You were just equipped for those things just now. And you weren't only equipped to deal with struggles. You were equipped to have a God-glorifying life. You were equipped so that your priorities would reflect truths like his blood is that fine. So that your lives and your priorities and your lips the things that you talk about, the things that are important to you, how you spend your time, that all of those things would be impacted by realities like the fact that his great shepherd does not leave his sheep behind, but that he drew you through the abyss of death as well. Man, you were equipped for those things. And not only that, you were equipped to minister to someone else in their dark corner, in their dark season. Somebody sent me an email this week, and I'm not going to name them because I don't want to embarrass their child. But someone, it, it shouldn't be embarrassing, but it's so God-glorifying. I, I don't want it even to be a possibility. This little girl had a text message to a friend as her friend was going through a dark time. And this little girl is encouraging her friend with things that she's learned on Wednesday nights in Bible study, saying, don't isolate yourself. Don't be alone. You need to be with people that love you and care about you when you're hurting. That's my paraphrase. It was more girl language, little bitty girl language. I don't know how to talk like a little bitty girl. But it was good, man. She was equipped to minister to another little girl in a dark valley in a dark season. Do you realize in the last few minutes, do you realize over the last four years that you have been equipped to obey God and walk with him in these and through these truths. These aren't just nifty, unrelated pieces of theological data. They're the goods. They're the equipment. They're the stuff. 
You need to be equipped to do his will. You need to be equipped to obey. And God equips you through the folly of preaching. He does. The second thing is related to that. The second thing is that the sad reality that your life and the goods can pass like ships in the night. I've seen it in, in, in him words, or and or. Drama on purpose. Or and or. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat and counseled with somebody that I love and care about and talked to someone that I love and care about and they're expressing me these deep and dark difficult issues they're going through and I ask the question well how did Sunday's message or how did these last couple of messages shed light on those things and I get the thousand yard stare and these are people that love Jesus and these are people that as far as I can tell from what I'm preaching up here are looking at me they're not like they're, they're apparently awake people that love Jesus people that are awake people that have their Bibles open people in a lot of cases that are even taking notes but yet, the ship, one ship of the life is going this way, and another ship of the equipment is going this way, and they, and they nary meet. Man, I'm telling you, it scares me how easily we can come and go week after week unequipped. It scares me that it's possible to come and sit and breathe in the same room with a f room full of people where preaching and exposition and a message of salvation and equipping instructions, perinesis, insight and wisdom, the goods are being communicated and how easily we can leave unchanged, unfazed, and unmodified. I have news for you. It can happen to the preacher too, because the preacher can believe that because he's preached it, he's lived it. One ship going one way, one going another. It's very easy. And if it's possible for me, it's possible for you. That you can believe that because you've heard it, you've lived it. Because you've heard it, that you've processed it, that you've synthesized it, that it's permeated and saturated your life when it may not have at all. But you may have a wonderful complement of notes there. Beautiful, reproducible. But it may have passed like a ship in the night, never connecting to your life. Because you've heard it doesn't mean that you've lived it and that you've processed it. Here's some diagnostics for you. If I ask you how a message is affecting your life, though you may not have an immediate answer, you should be at least working on one. Okay, it's not a quiz. It's not a pass-fail thing. You should be at least working on it. Well, what did Sunday equip me for? That's what your lunch conversation should be, kids, family, wife, husband. What did Sunday equip us for? Because it surely equipped us for something, right? Man, it, yes, it should. It's supposed to. Some diagnostic questions. When was the last time a sermon influenced your schedule the next week or month? I'm not being ugly in this. I'm asking myself the same questions. Because I, I told you, I confessed to you, that I can land in a place where I preached it, so I've lived it. <laughs> when I didn't. When was the last time a sermon influenced your schedule that next week or month? When was the last time a sermon 
a brief word of exhortation, influence the conversation you are having with another person, the wife maybe, or husband, or child, or parent. Kids, you can listen to. When was the last time what happened here connected to what's going on there? When was the last time a sermon connected to a conversation you were having with a workmate or a friend? Did you realize you're being equipped here to be salty, bright, and aromatic there? You come to me and talk to me, man, and I got this situation at work. I don't know what to do. How should I move forward? You likely were equipped for it in the Sunday before it. The Holy Spirit is that surgical. It's shocking. If we'll but think, oh, I bet I was equipped for something this week. I bet I was equipped for this moment. When was the last time a sermon came to mind as you looked at yourself in the mirror and wondered to yourself? Has anybody else ever done this? Is this all there is? What's my purpose in life? What am I made for? Has a sermon ever connected to that moment where you go, oh, I was made to draw near. I was made to hold fast. Oh, that's right. I was made to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I was made for obedience. I was made for worship, to offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I was made to share with one another, to be actually a good person in the name of Jesus. That's what I was made for in that moment, in the mirror. Has that ever happened to you? It's supposed to. If that mirror comes and goes and you miss that connection, then you have to wonder, was it just ships? If crickets were your answers to these questions, now these were not meant for you to answer out loud, but as you're thinking, and as maybe as families, you're talking, man, I'm afraid I just got my answers, kind of crickets. If crickets were your answer to these questions, then your life and the goods aren't connecting. They're ships. And your life and the goods have to connect. That's called worship. And doing his will, in order to do his will, they have to connect. Remember? You don't come by naturally. You have to be equipped for it. If your answer to those questions, some of those diagnostic questions was crickets, then either maybe you haven't realized this is equipping you for that, Or maybe you've realized it, but you're just okay with collecting theological data and believing that you've lived it because you've heard it. Or believing you've lived it because you've preached it. Some hard questions. I hope you really consider them. I'm considering them too. Scott and Brad and I know how dangerous it can be. You feel like you've got it done, you go home and you park it. And it stays parked. Nary to be revisited can happen to any of us and it may happen to all of us some of the time it could happen to some of us all of the time God has equipped us these last four years though man I was thinking about the matrix I really was I was thinking about the matrix you know like where Neo I think is he's sitting in that chair and he's just come out of come out of the matrix or whatever I, don't, I forget all it's been a while since i've even seen it but i was thinking about this where 
like where he's learning jujitsu and all those different, you know, kung fu and all those different forms, you know. And they just load it on the computer and they put this little thing in the back of his head and he gets it. He's equipped with it. He, he all, all of a sudden he knows all these moves. Well, it wasn't that easy for us. It's taken four years for us. Wouldn't it be funny if we just showed up and just plugged it in and we left with all the goods of Hebrews? It's taken us four years, but we've been equipped with some really amazing things if we were listening. Here's just a short list of some of those things. The first one I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on because this deals with our context. The first one we've learned from this book is that people can walk away from the faith. The first thing that we've dealt with, or one of the things that we've dealt with in this book that's really, really hard, if you want to turn to Matthew 7, you can have that ready. I'll show you a couple things. Matthew 7. People can walk away from the faith. There's a word for it. The word is apostasy. Apostasy. Where people leave the faith. It happens. And in their case, what, was in, what they were in danger of was falling back into Judaism. That that's apostasy. They've fallen away from faith into something that's now not faith at all. Falling back into Judaism. It was safe for them. In our case, in our context, what we can fall back into very easily, what some of you could fall back into very easily, is what I've called churchless Christianity. That seems to be our version of the safe fallback in our context. Churchless Christianity. I love Jesus. <laughs> Man, he saved me. I'm going to heaven, but I have no use for the church. I don't need that preaching thing. I don't need to gather with the people. I don't need the supper. I got my baptism. I got that thing written in the front of my Bible. And God and I are square, but I don't need the rest of it. That seems to be a very common apostasy, if that's what it is, in our context. But this book has shed some light on it. Matthew, I said Matthew 7. Yeah, look at Matthew 7, verse 21. This book has sort of rounded out passages like this. It's sort of amplified and helped make sense of passages like this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Remember the question I asked a little while ago? If I had that, the mark of a Christian is what? Love or obedience. According to this, it's obedience. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We could, in our context, potentially say that there might be some who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, was I not baptized in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Lord, Lord. It's written and signed by my pastor. I forget what his name was. Right here. Lord, Lord, I had lots of affection for Jesus for decades in Greenville. I, I know I didn't go to church. I know I didn't gather with his people. I know I didn't hear the preaching of the word. I know I didn't make a beeline to the supper week by week, but Lord, Lord. And they could hear the words, I never knew you. This book has shed some light on the reality that there is such thing as apostasy 
And that is very reasonably, potentially, apostasy. That may be what a large part of Greenville hears. Does that burden you? Do you care about that? Do you care about your workmates and your neighbors enough to go to swallow hard where that really breaks your heart? Look at Matthew 13. This was the other thing that I think has been sort of amplified and explained a little bit in this journey through Hebrews. The sower, the seed, and the soils. We had a series of sermons years... That was like a... um, alliteration or something. There's about 12 S's in a row right there. When we first started here as a church years ago, early on, we had a series of sermons in this Matthew 13, so we've seen the soils. And here Jesus teaches, teaching a parable about the nature of the kingdom and teaching about how different soils are going to receive the word in different ways. Some are going to receive it and are going to find real purchase in real dark, loamy soil, and they're going to bear fruit. And that's believers, it looks like. And then others are going to hear it, and Satan's going to grab that word and just snatch it away and never finds any purchase. In one ear and out the other, in the door and out the door. But then there are some that are going to be like the rocky soil or the thorny soil. The rocky soil in this case is where the word is sown on rocky ground. One who hears the word immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Apostasy happens. It blows my mind when we were dealing with apostasy in Hebrews where people were so discombobulated. I don't understand why, because we've got all these passages right here that you go all of a sudden that go like this. They're like a bunch of disconnected things that you read and you kind of get nervous about. But then when you see them in light of our journey through Hebrews, they all come together and go, oh, now it makes sense. Homeboy was an apostate. When things got hard for being a Christian and he bailed on the Christian faith altogether because his family or maybe his workmate or maybe somebody else made fun of him, he walked away from the faith. He's the rocky soil. Or maybe what seems a whole lot more common is the next one for us. How many times have we seen it? The thorny soil. Maybe the seed falls on among thorns. This is the one who hears the word, verse 22. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Hebrews has made sense of this when people walk away from the faith. They walk away from the journey with the people of God. They walk away from the goods and the equipment to do his will week by week. That maybe they've just fallen back in love with the world. Maybe it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that have robbed the word and it proves unfruitful. Our journey in Hebrews has helped us understand passages like 1 John 2.19. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Man, Hebrews has shed light on guys like Demas. Some of y'all may remember Demas. 
Demas was a guy that served with Paul in his ministry. And in fact, in Colossians 4.14, he made the goodbye greetings. Listen to Demas. Listen, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas, Paul's teammate right here. But then by the time 2 Timothy is written later on, toward the end of Paul's ministry, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas has bailed on the faith. Apostasy happens. Man, people left Christ's ministry in droves. Have you really read the gospel and paid attention? Who's moving where? John chapter 6, after he's fed the multitudes, and then he preaches a message. After he walks on the water, he preaches a message. Oh, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. They leave in droves, and he turns to Peter. He says, Peter, are you going to go too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Meanwhile, you can hear the, the crowds rustling as they leave. Apostasy happens in John chapter 8. That's the revival gone bad. Where people put down their little putt-putt golf course pencils as they're filling out the decision cards. And then by the end of it, they trade those little putt-putt pencils for stones as they're ready to stone Jesus. Passion Week begins with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it ends with, Give us Barabbas. Apostasy happens. We've had little phrases so inundated, so, so infused in us like once saved, always saved, that we don't really have a place to deal with what happens when someone walks away from the people of God. Scott and I spent a couple of years knocking on every door south of I-30. I don't know if we hit every single one, but we hit most of them, south of I-30 in Greenville. And what we heard over and over again for people that weren't in church, they would say of one another or they would say of a family member, at least he's saved. He's not part of a church. He's not walking with the people of God. He's not being equipped with the goods. He's not taking and eating and drinking. He's not singing true things to God, back to God, about God. But at least he's saved. Man, either Greenville is apostate or wildly duped. We won't know until eternity, but it doesn't look good. It's grim right now. Man, Hebrews has burdened us for our context. We're most testified to some experience with God, yet few actually walk with him and his people, i.e., continue with him. He's burdened us with a concern that either our context is apostate or duped. I hope you think on those things as you live next to those folks, as you related to those folks, as you could become one of those folks. I hope you hear these echo in your ears, these words. He's acquainted us with the reality that there is no salvation apart from the church. St. Cyprian in 3rd century AD was the first one to phrase that, to coin that phrase, extra ecclesium nulla salus. Apart from the church, there is no salvation. It sounds sort of Catholic. But listen to what Martin Luther said. Protestant, not a Catholic. Well, used to be a Catholic. Turned Protestant. Therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ is and his faith were if we did not know where his believers are? And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself nor build a bridge to heaven by his own reason, but he must go to the church, attend, and ask her. 
Now the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. One must hold to them and see how they believe, live, and teach. They surely have Christ in their midst. For outside of the Christian church, there is no truth, there is no Christ, there is no salvation. John Calvin said, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. Man, every time I say those things, I just I, I see people's faces. And they're like, I've never I really thought of that. I'm not sure I'm okay with that. Hebrews has taught us that. Hebrews has shown us that. That people walk away from the people of God, and they're walking away from the church. We'll consider that more in a moment. The second thing that we've learned from this book that we've been equipped with is that Jesus is better than any fallback. He's better than the alternatives. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua, better than any priest that's ever lived, including Melchizedek, if Melchizedek was not a cameo of Jesus. He's better than some really good stuff and so much better, in fact, that holding fast to those lesser shadows is an affront to him. To do so is trading birthright for soup. Third, we've learned from this book that we're not alone, but we have a host of witnesses watching us, cheering for us. The stands are full, a chapter full of heroes, and some that may be in your chapter of heroes, faithfuls who have gone on before us, fill the stands, cheering for us, rooting for us to finish the race well. And we've learned from this book, too, that we're not alone on this race. Not only are the stands full, but the track is full. We don't run this race alone, but we run it with everyone else, God's people. And there's no real picture that it can be run any other way. We've learned from this book things like this. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near. That's something that we do together. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart, singular. That's the church. That's the atmosphere. That's the mindset of the church, that we together draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10.23. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This is what we've learned in Hebrews. We've been equipped for the reality that worship best, at its best, is done with a bunch of us's. Man, there is a, there's a space, there's room for that personal quiet time and those spiritual disciplines. But those don't take the place. Those are to serve complementary to the life of the church. As we together draw near, as we together hold fast, as we together let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You can't do that on your own. You need the church in your life to do that. Let us run the race with endurance. We need each other to run this race. It's not a solo. We've learned this in Hebrews. Man, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Let's suffer together too. And let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. We've been equipped in the last four years with a clear view of the church 
that there is no salvation apart from the church. It's where Jesus is. It's where worship happens with one another. As we draw near, as we hold fast, as we offer up praise. Man. Lastly, we've been equipped with what's emphasized here in this Hebrews benediction prayer. May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. We've been equipped with this reality that God is Lord and sovereign over this work as we are about some let us's. As we are about being equipped to worship him, he is the one who's ultimately working in and through us and on us. It's one of the greatest treasures of this book is knowing that our journeys will not be dependent on our faithfulness, but on his. And he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. The preservation and perseverance of the saints is not based on our faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness, because God is faithful. That should be something we celebrate, something we enjoy together. My closing thought on this book. Very anticlimactic, seems like to me, because it's, I'm thinking of J.I. Packer or Piper or somebody like that was to summarize the book, it would just be, you'd be just awash in some glorious thing. This is not like that. My thoughts on this book connect to my marriage. I was talking with a couple this week about my marriage, shared with them my story. Christy and I dated for five years, and I... I believed early on we were going to be married, but I didn't have the guts to actually buy a ring and ask her until four years into it. And I made sure that the ring was returnable because I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Well, as it turns out, she said yes, and then we had a year-long engagement. And after we were married, we moved to South Carolina. And then we began what I would call some of the hardest years of my life. I would probably say our lives. But we had lots to celebrate. We had Evan and Luke and Daniel show up in time. Early on, obviously, Evan being the oldest. Lots to celebrate there, but, man, we struggled. We struggled in our marriage, especially. And the reason we struggled, I believe, the heart of it is because I saw marriage as an event. I saw Christy more as a conquest than anything else. My understanding of marriage was we'll get married and then we'll move on in life conquering other things I'll conquer you and then we'll go on and tackle life together we'll conquer doing things, traveling going, experiencing life together, just being and here's the cool thing Christy, we won't be alone anymore because we'll have each other we'll be like best friends doing life together that sounds all neat and quaint but it didn't work out very good because Christy missed when we got married, the pursuit ended. She was just the next conquest. And then I want her to move on with me into the next one instead of realizing that she was to be pursued until she breathes her last. How many men could learn that? How many wives pined for that, to be pursued and enjoyed and sought? My affections, though, when we were married and my pursuit turned from her 
to life, on to the next conquest. And we can do that in faith so easily. We can do it in faith where we treat faith the same way, where we get married, so to speak, and then we move on with life, just me and Jesus. Partners in life, tackling new conquests. Thankfully, we won't be lonely anymore because he's going to go wherever we go and he's going to help us with whatever we want to tackle in life. What this book has developed in me through 10 chapters of deep and awesome and wonderful truths about Jesus as high priest is the realization that he's not my partner in life, just here to keep me from being lonely. He's to be pursued. He's to be enjoyed. He's to be sought. We're to join in with the cherubim and the seraphim, never ceasing to say over and over again, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. We're to enjoy old and deep and rich truths about him daily. For his excellencies are infinite, unlike those of our spouses, even if they're pretty awesome. His are infinite. We can't and won't plumb the depths of his work, nor will we summit the heights of his great power. But we can, though, and we should spend the rest of our days enjoying him, trusting him, believing in him together, being equipped by him through the life of the church to do his will and to bring him glory. He did not do what he did to make our lives better. He did what he did to become our lives. Let's pray. God, what a rich journey this has been. What a fine and wonderful complement of equipment down to the very last Sunday. God, I am so thankful that this morning we were equipped with the reality that you drew your son, the great shepherd, through the abyss of death, and you didn't draw him alone. But you drew us, the sheep, with him. Lord, I'm thankful that we were equipped, even as of this morning, with the reality that his blood is so fine and so effective and so satisfying that you said that'll do. And that the human problem is reconciled through Christ's blood, that his resurrection means ours. God, I pray that though that those truths, even as of this morning, that those will invade our Tuesday and invade our marriages and invade our perspective on life, maybe as a student. Whatever role, whatever abyss, whatever darkness pressing in, that it would invade those darknesses and that it would equip us that our priorities in our lives would reflect a wonderful and faithful high priest. God, this has been such a sweet journey. We entrust this time to you this morning. We entrust these last four years to you. We entrust ourselves to you. We ask you to equip us through it. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.